listening to the Michael Anthony Bible Teaching Podcast. This episode covers the life of Christ and the Gospel of Luke. You can enjoy more messages like this with the free Courage Matters app, available in your app store. If you'd like to request Michael for an interview, guest appearance, or as a keynote speaker for your event, click the Invite tab on the Courage Matters app or on CourageMatters.com. A conspiracy is a secret plan by two or more people to do something harmful or illegal. When we turn to the scriptures in our Lord's word to Luke chapter 22, beginning in verse 7, we see that there is a conspiracy underway for something harmful to happen. It might not be illegal, but it certainly is harmful. And it's something that you need to be aware of and I need to be aware of, we need to be aware of it because if it happened then and there, in that day, in that time, in that setting, it can happen here and now in your life and in my life, in your setting, in your time, in my time, and we need to be aware of it. Look with me at Luke chapter 22, beginning in verse seven. Then came the day of unleavened bread on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. So Jesus sent Peter and John saying, go and prepare the Passover for us that we may eat it. They said to him, where will you have us prepare it? He said to them, behold, when you have entered the city, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you Follow him into the house that he enters and tell the master of the house, the teacher says to you, where is the guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room furnished. Prepare it there. And they went and found it just as he had told them and they prepared the Passover. Now, I don't know if you, I don't know if you realized it right there in that particular passage, but Jesus is demonstrating an ability to see the future. He's demonstrating an ability to see the future. So people who make up the argument that Jesus was out of his mind, you don't explain by saying that, by trying to dismiss Jesus as being out of his mind. That argument does not explain away Jesus' ability to see the future. He's exercising one of the aspects of his divinity, that he is not just a man, not just a Messiah, not just the Savior, but he's also God in the flesh. He has the ability to see the future. Verse 14, and when the hour came, he reclined at the table and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I've earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took a cup. When he had given thanks, he said, take this and divide it among yourselves. For I tell you that from now on, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them saying, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup after they had eaten, saying, this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. But behold, the hand of him who betrays me is with me on the table. For the Son of Man goes as it has been determined, but woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. And they began to question one another which of them it could be who was going to do this. And in the midst of this context, the Last Supper, where Jesus is talking about his suffering, 
Jesus is talking about his own blood being shed. Jesus is talking about having a remembrance of himself through the Last Supper. It's in the context of this that the apostles begin to respond and they begin to put their arms around Jesus. They begin to comfort him. They begin to say, Jesus, we're with you. Jesus, we understand the emotional anguish that you're experiencing. Look at what it says. And they put their arms around Jesus and began to comfort him and tell him everything was going to be all right. We care about you. We've been with you for three years. That's the reversed standard version. It's not what happens at all. What's significant to note here is the context in which this next section takes place. The interaction between the disciples, the apostles, and Jesus. It's significant to note that this particular interaction happens right there in the midst of the Last Supper, where Jesus is talking about his own suffering. It's then and there that in verse 24 we read, a dispute also arose among them as to which of them was to be regarded as the greatest. Seriously? Really? Then and there? In the midst of that setting? A dispute also arose as they were discussing which one of them was going to betray Jesus. A dispute also arose as to which one of them would be considered the greatest. There is a secret plan underway by two or more of the apostles. It's a harmful plan. It's a devastating, devilish, dastardly plan that is playing out right there in the midst of them breaking bread, in the midst of them having what we now refer to as communion, the Last Supper. And also a dispute broke out among them as to which of them was the greatest Doesn't this seem so classically ironic, even to say it in that way? Verse 25, and he said to them, the kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and those in authority over them are called benefactors, but not so with you. Rather, let the greatest among you become as the youngest and the leader as one who serves. For who is greater, one who reclines at the table or one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at the table? But I am among you as one who serves. You are those who have stayed with me in my trials, and I assign to you as my Father assigned to me a kingdom, that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. Look at this. Jesus saying, I am among you as one who served. You know, one of the things that they needed to understand is something that you and I need to understand. It'll keep you from sinning. It'll keep me from sinning. Oftentimes we have spiritual amnesia where something in the course of our lives hits us up on side of the head. A health issue or a financial issue or a relational issue. Something happens in our lives that distracts us temporarily. And if it's temporary, no matter how long it is, it's long enough. 
If it distracts us even for an instant from the glory of God, it's too long to tolerate. They needed to understand that they were going to judge the 12 tribes of Israel. We hear all the time, don't judge or you'll be judged. Everyone wants to take the words of Jesus and recraft them and put words in Jesus' mouth, new context into the situation in which Jesus spoke those words. But here, there is such a thing as judgment. And typically when we think of the judgment of God, we think of Jesus, whether it's the judgment seat of Christ spoken of in 1 Corinthians or whether it's the great white throne judgment spoken of in the book of Revelation. We often think of the judgment as being only something that, that only Jesus is involved with. But here we gain insight in that the apostles are going to be involved in judging the 12 tribes of Israel and not just the apostles. They might be involved in judging the 12 tribes of Israel, but you and I are going to be involved in this judgment too. And this is where we, we take a big gulp and we rediscover the humility that we're supposed to be walking through in this life. We understand the tremendous responsibility that God has given to every single Christ follower the authority that he's given every single one of us not to look down our noses, not to be hot, haughty and thinking that it's something that we have decided to do. It's nothing that we've decided to do. It's something that God in his grace and his goodness has included us to be kingdom builders and to be part of judgment. See, when we remember that God has included us in his kingdom agenda, it's what brings humility. It's what keeps us walking in holiness. This idea of sanctification being set apart for the glory of God. When a circumstance happens in your life and my life that distracts us from pure and sincere devotion to Jesus, we have spiritual amnesia. We forget the position of honor that God has given to each and every Christ follower Look with me at 1 Corinthians chapter 6. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, here's an amazing passage of Scripture written by a recovering Pharisee, the Apostle Paul, very familiar with the Old Testament, and he writes to the Corinthians who were distracted because they were involved in lawsuits against each other. Can you imagine that? feeling that another follower of Jesus Christ did you wrong, so what do you do? You take him or you take her to the secular court and you have people who are not regenerated, not born again, solving the issue, debating the issue, discussing the issue, and Paul has to rebuke them. And this is where he does it in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 1. When one of you has a grievance against another, does he dare go to law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? Or do you not know? that the saints will judge the world. Wow. When we look at a passage of Scripture like that, we realize how easy it is for us to become distracted with something temporal, something insignificant, something temporary, something worldly. 
Instead of understanding that in Christ you have been given, I have been given by the grace of Almighty God a position of authority to be involved in judging those who don't know Jesus Christ as their Savior and God. That is not something, even as the words come out of my mouth, that we can look down our noses at other people with. That's not something that we can look at other people as if we've got something that we did for ourselves. It's humbling to stop and think. The judgment of God is very real. And that somehow, in the miraculous, mysterious way of God, he wants to include you and he wants to include me in judging the nations. And when we realize that, I'll tell you what, that's a remedy for a sin-filled life. A life of sinful activity where there is no remorse. The remedy for that is to understand that you and I have been saved at the precious price of the blood of Jesus Christ and that there is a judgment coming that you and I will be part of in judging those who have rejected Jesus Christ, and it's humbling and it's motivating and it's inspiring and it should make us fall at the feet of Jesus with gratitude for the undeserved favor that he's poured out on each and every one of us. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, look what he says in verse 2. Do you not know that the saints will judge the world? But that's not all. And if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? In other words, it doesn't matter how significant you think your grievance is against another brother or sister in Christ. It's trivial in light of the fact of God forgiving every single one of our sins in Jesus Christ. And then he says in verse 3, do you not know that we are are to judge angels. We are to judge angels, and many of us we place angels, we put the, we put angels on pedestals. They're these untouchable, mysterious creatures that are demystified when we get to the book of Hebrews and we read chapter one that angels are ministering spirits sent to serve those who will inherit salvation. That's what an angel is. And yet we are going to judge them. You want to talk about a dose of humility. You want to talk about motivation to live rightly for Jesus Christ in the here and now. There it is. God saved you. God saved me by faith in Jesus Christ as an act of grace, undeserved favor. God in his mercy withholds judgment that we otherwise deserve. And a byproduct of that new position of favor and sonship or being adopted as a daughter before Almighty God is that we be involved in judging the nations and judging the angels. Something seemed to have happened to the apostles at that last supper and it wasn't conviction. It wasn't brokenness. It wasn't an appreciation for Jesus. As Jesus has been with them for three years, they've been with Jesus now for three years. They saw the feeding of the 5,000. They saw the loaves and the fishes multiplied in a miraculous, stupendous, biblically epic way. 
They had seen that. They had eaten some of that fish and some of that bread that was miraculously provided for by the Almighty Son of God. They were there when the demons came up in the people. When the legion came up out of the tombs and said, we are legion for we are many, and Jesus commanded the legion to be silent. And then in the next scene, they see that man fully dressed, clothed, and in his right mind, no longer cutting himself, no longer defacing himself because Jesus, the almighty son of God, the savior, God in the flesh had come in their midst. They had seen that. And they were in that boat. In the Sea of Galilee, when a squall came up, as it could often happen, unexpectedly out of nowhere, and they were fearful for their lives as the water was raging and the waves were high and the boat was rocking every which way. And in the distance, they saw what appeared to be a ghost. And the reason why they thought it was a ghost is because it was walking on the water that was tossing them back and forth. It wasn't a ghost. It was Jesus who got close enough to be able to speak to them and Peter is called out, come and join me. And Peter, while he's looking at Jesus, does just fine until he begins to look elsewhere. They were there. Time after time, after time, after time, when they saw Jesus' miraculous works, they heard Jesus' amazing teaching, putting himself on equal footing with God the Father. They had come to that conclusion that Jesus was the Lord of their lives. They had left everything to follow Jesus. Remember, follow me, and I'll make you fishers of men. And they left their nets Follow Jesus and here in the Last Supper. What did they learn after three years? And instance after instance after instance after instance in this school with God that they had been in for three years. There was a conspiracy underway, a secret plan by two or more people to do something harmful. To do something harmful against Jesus. And against the agenda of Jesus. If these guys don't understand what it's about after three years of seeing Jesus, three years of hearing Jesus, three years of walking with Jesus, three years of being able to reach out and touch Jesus, and they're having a debate about which one among them is greatest, what about you and me? How susceptible you and I are to getting into a rabbit trail, getting into some type of a conspiracy. See, it's really not so secret after all. 
These disciples didn't just wake up one day and say, hey, you know what? Let's throw off this yoke of following Jesus. Let's just abandon this whole thing about Jesus. No, this was an undercurrent all throughout the three-year ministry of Jesus. And it tends to crop its head up at these opportune times when they should have been following Jesus, should have been tracking with Jesus, should have been about the kingdom of God, and they were missing it all along. In Matthew chapter 18, a dispute breaks out about which one of them is the greatest. They ask, who's the greatest in the kingdom of God? James and John, the mama's boys, remember, come with mommy and want to know which one of us can sit at your right, which one of us can sit at your left, because after all, we deserve a position of honor. One of the most harmful things that can happen in the life of a believer in the life of a disciple is demonstrated in the lives of the apostles. If they were tempted and they were, if they were tested and they were, to get into a debate and a discussion about which one of them was the greatest in the midst of the final supper, then you and I are likewise susceptible to the same type of conspiracy to undermine the agenda of Jesus. There is nothing more damaging, nothing more dastardly, nothing more destructive than seeking to make yourself great at the expense of the great one, Jesus. There is nothing more destructive, more devilish, more diabolical, more divisive, more undermining than seeking to make a name for yourself instead of advancing the name and the reputation and the agenda of Jesus Christ. And if the apostles were susceptible, if there was an undercurrent in their lives to undermine the agenda of Jesus in the midst of the Last Supper, then you and I better be on the alert as well. You and I better look with tremendous sobriety at our own lives and what it is that we're trying to build and what it is that we're trying to do and whose name and reputation we're trying to advance because they had been with Jesus in ways that you and I have never been with Jesus. And they were susceptible. And so this is where I make an appeal to each and every one of us to understand that at any time, all the time, whenever you want, whenever I want, we can have a personal word from God, courtesy of the word of God, the Bible. And if the apostles were susceptible to missing Jesus while they were right there in its midst, while he's talking about suffering, while he's talking about the blood of the covenant and doing this in remembrance of him, then you and I need to be in the word of God to see Jesus move, to hear the teachings of Jesus, 
This is how we spend time with the word who became flesh and lived among us for a while. We do it by spending time in the word of God. And all you need to do is make a commitment to do it for seven days. Seven days. Make it your ambition to read the Bible and submit to the Bible as the first order of your daily business right after you get out of bed or even while you're still in bed. Do it for seven days. Don't just read the Bible. Remember the Pharisees memorized the Bible. Read the Bible with a commitment to put it into action. Do it every day for seven days. Do not beat yourself up if you miss a day. It's the principle, not the legality of it. Don't become a legalist. Do it for seven days, and on the eighth day, recommit yourself for another seven days of the same. And if you do that week after week after week, you will realize how far you can go when you listen to Jesus. You'll realize how much God can change your life when you see Jesus move, and you'll build your faith. Remember, to build your faith, lift your Bible. If the apostles could be easily deceived, easily sucked into this conspiracy to undermine the agenda of Jesus, then you and I better take heed. You and I better be looking for Jesus. We better be looking to Jesus. We better be listening to Jesus. We better be obeying Jesus because if we're not careful, the subtlety is that we could undermine not only ourselves, but the Lord Jesus himself. Look with me at what the weeping prophet wrote in the book of Jeremiah, chapter 45, verse 5. Jeremiah 45, 5. Tremendous words of scripture to commit to memory and to get them into your own spiritual DNA as a follower of Jesus Christ. Jeremiah 45, 5. And do you seek great things for yourself? Seek them not. Do you seek great things for yourself? Seek them not. Instead, seek to exalt the great one, Jesus Christ. See, there's a conspiracy in your life and in mine. As long as we're living outside of Eden, we've got to be aware of it and we've got to counter it. It's a conspiracy to undermine God himself. And we don't do it intentionally when we give our lives to Christ. We don't give our lives to Christ and then, then put our hands together and say, well, let me think about all the ways now I can undermine God's agenda in my life. But there is a subtle but significant. See, don't confuse subtlety with insignificance. There is a subtle and significant conspiracy raging underneath the surface in your life and in mine against the agenda of God. In Isaiah chapter 55, verses 8 and 9, look at these amazing words of Scripture that help us understand how significant, how deep our problem is. In Isaiah 55, beginning in verse 8, For my thoughts, God says, are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your ways. See, even when we think we understand Jesus, 
There's more of Jesus to understand. Even when we think we're following Jesus, the apostles sitting there at the Last Supper, the kingdom is being conferred on them. Jesus is ready to pass the baton on to them. Say, listen, this is my last meal with you. The next time we see each other and have a meal together of this kind, it'll be in the kingdom. We need to understand that our thoughts are not God's thoughts. God's ways are not our ways. And the imagery that Isaiah provides is the heavens being infinitely far above us. Where do they end? That's how fundamentally different the ways of God are from our ways. You've got to be careful. I've got to be careful. We've got to be careful. We don't begin to seek great things for ourselves. But instead, we seek great things for the great one, whose name is Jesus. You've got to be careful of that, and I've got to be careful of that in our personal lives. We've got to be careful of that in our families, that our families are understood to be revolving around the person and the works of Jesus Christ. A family exists for the glory of God. A marriage exists for the glory of God. If you don't believe me, read the book of Ephesians where Paul's talking about husbands and wives and then he transitions and he says, listen, I'm not going to belittle this whole object lesson. I'm not going to insult your intelligence or more so the intelligence of God. I'm not talking about mere mortal marriage. I'm talking about what marriage on earth reflects in the heavenlies, the glory of God and the love of God for the church and the love for God that the church should have for Jesus. We've got to be careful in the church and the body of Christ that we are advancing the agenda, the purpose, the name, and the reputation of Jesus Christ. When we seek to make a great name for our church, we're settling for something far less than what Jesus died for when he hung on the cross. Oh, how we would see spiritual awakening in this nation if we became less enamored with the name of our own church and our own ministry or ministries and more sold out for the exaltation of Jesus. See how subtle, how undermining, how satanic and how belittling it is that we can compete against each other, compete against another church at any moment, any day, any set of circumstances, we can begin to seek great things for ourselves. We can begin to actually demonstrate the truth that God's thoughts are higher than our thoughts, that his ways are higher than our ways. Let's get on with it. Let's embrace that truth and continually be in the word of God, continually surrender ourselves to the God of his word so that what happened to the apostles at a key time, at a turning point in the ministry of Jesus does not happen to us unsuspectingly, at an inopportune time, at any time, we could be self-deceived and begin to think that God is interested in advancing our own agenda and our own reputation and our own kingdom. Never was what it was about when Jesus 
opened his word, opened his mouth for the very first time and began to preach a gospel of repentance and believing, continually repenting and continually believing. And I don't know if you've realized this in your life, I've realized it in my life, how much repentance is enough for the Christ follower? A little more. When we get to the book of Galatians, we see how Paul, the recovering Pharisee again, helps us understand the way that God has put before us to deal, to deal with this conspiracy that you and I could give into and cave into and begin to shoot for something much less significant than the glory of God and the exaltation of Jesus Christ. In the book of Galatians, the recovering Pharisee, Paul, says this. In chapter 5, verse 16, But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. The remedy for this conspiracy in your life and mine, which is to do something harmful to the name and the reputation of Jesus Christ, the remedy for all of that is to walk in the Spirit. And you will not gratify, I will not gratify any Christ follower when we walk in the Spirit, will not gratify the desires of the flesh or the sinful nature. But I say, walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh, for the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh, for these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things that you want to do. But if you're led by the Spirit, you're not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, remember the apostles, dissensions and divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. Paul's not even being exhaustive. He's just wetting our appetite, just, just wetting our appetite to help us understand that in each one of us, apart from the undeserved favor of God, apart from the mercy of God, apart from the Spirit of God, not one good thing dwells. And if that's the case in your life and in mine, and it is, and we must be patently aware every moment of every day that we could give in to the conspiracy to promote self to become fleshly, to be carnal, instead of being about exalting the only one who's worthy to be exalted and his name is Jesus. I warn you, Paul says in verse 21, as I warned you before that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, Peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. That's what the Spirit of God brings in your life and in mine and in the life of any believer in abundance. 
Against such things there is no law, and those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. The idea of crucifying the flesh with its passions and its desires. You've got passions, I've got passions, and every single one of them is opposed to the agenda of God. Every single one of them is fixated and focused upon our own thoughts, our own ways. We have ways and thoughts that are so ingrained in who we are, being human, that we don't even realize that at any moment we too could be like the apostles sitting there at a moment that is rich and overflowing with the undeserved favor of God, the Last Supper, where Jesus is pouring out his heart for the Apostles and giving them an inside view of his heart. He's wearing his heart on his sleeve, if ever he was. Telling them, I'm about to suffer. Right over their heads. This is the last time I'm going to have this Passover that I've eagerly desired to eat with you. Right over the heads. One of you is going to betray me There's not going to be an inside job, is there? Which one? And by the way, in the midst of all of that, while Jesus is pouring out his heart to them in their very midst, as they're sitting there, reclining there at the table with him. And they've been with him for three years. They're hearing Jesus and not hearing him. They're seeing Jesus and they're not seeing him. And they get into a debate and a discussion about trivial, temporal, selfish, self-centered, conspiratorial things. A conspiracy is a perspective of two or more people to do something harmful. And sometimes something illegal. And if the apostles were in danger of conspiring against the Lord after seeing him for so long, after hearing him so frequently, after touching him, walking with him, and you and I can take heed of the same danger, that conspiracy to undermine unintentionally the agenda and the kingdom of God. You've been listening to the Michael Anthony Bible Teaching Podcast. If you enjoyed this message, you'll love Michael Anthony's Courage Matters Podcast, where he focuses on leadership, relationships, and world events. To learn more, visit CourageMatters.com or download the free Courage Matters app. Interested in requesting Michael for an interview, guest appearance, or as a keynote speaker for your event? Click the Invite tab on the Courage Matters app or on CourageMatters.com. In the meantime, keep looking up. There's no place else worth looking. Mm -hmm.